Tonight, uh, I'd like to move through a bunch of different worlds. The first thing I want to um, speak about is is all of us. Somehow, when I tonight, when I'm looking around the room, I'm I'm struck as I have so many times before. I'm struck by the the inevitability of our being here, in a way, that uh, all, but also the awesomeness of our being here, the fact that, that, that everything that has happened in our life, that has happened to everyone in this room, has made it possible for us to meet together in this particular configuration that if one little thing was different in any one of our lives, if one thing was different in any one of our parents' lives, if one thing was different in anyone's life anywhere, we would not be in this configuration right now. That we are so embedded in a uh, a universe of interbeing, of interconnectedness, that... uh, that we are literally moved by, by non, non-personal circumstances. And for me, that's so relieving. On one hand, it's awe-inspiring that, that even my own, what I take to be me and mine, my own existence, has no, it has really no beginning. Clearly, it didn't start with my conception because my conception was dependent on my my parents, and then my parents were dependent on their parents, and then my parents coming together and my grandparents coming together were dependent on all the myriad circumstances in their life, and it just goes on and on and on to beginningless time. And that reminds me also that every aspect of what I call myself is made up just the elements of my body. We, last week we had Earth Week elements of my body, earth, air, fire, water, elements of my mind, culture, religion, race, privilege, you know, whatever it is, all of these factors have, have come together in each of us. And in that way, not one of us, as my friend Wes says, not one of us As he says it, you are not your fault. Not one of us is to blame for how we have come to be. We are certainly responsible as unique individuals in in this world, responsible for dealing with the conditions that have presented themselves because part of the condition is that we experience ourselves as individual. And we all have to make our individual choices, etc. But the, what moves inside of each of us is so completely non-personal in all of our conditioning. So the, the imposition of blame, the excessive extra arrows of blame that often compound the already challenging conditions of our lives are completely absurd. We're not to blame. So it's all that, all that extra judgment, 
self-view, even though it comes also from all those non-personal circumstances, it's just mostly, it's not true. It's, just, it's a distortion. Of course, ignorance, distortion, is also non-personal. So we're not to blame for that either. And I think the reason I was struck by this tonight is because I realized as I was sitting here tonight that I wouldn't be here in the way that I am, in the way that I feel, had it not been for uh, one of my mentors in graduate school, uh, a woman by the name of Angelus Arian. Many of you have probably read her work or been with her. And she was a really important um, mentor for me in graduate school. And she just passed away. For those, some of you may not be aware of that. She passed away on the 24th, had a long... Uh, battle with, uh, she was in, had walking pneumonia and had, had a serious illness about uh, eight or ten years ago. And, but uh, I just found out today. And I realized that I would not be here. In graduate school, she, um, in mentoring all her students, she had this incredible gift at mirroring in each person what their gift was. And then, uh, and then whatever that was or whoever that person was, she had a, a magic gift of giving that person a real sense of inner trust or highlighting something about that person that, that they could actually feel passionate, confident about, and then having it be the, kind, the vortex around which they built their sense of inner trust. And I am forever in her debt. Uh, she was a, an anthropologist, a shaman, a healer, a tarot reader. Uh, she, had, she was one of those people, you've heard the expression, uh, my, uh, my feet on the ground, my head in the clouds. She was completely grounded of this earth, but at the same time she lived in a world of magic. She was half... She lived half of her time in the Basque region of Spain, you know, or in the Basque, not in Basque area, not, but she was Basque. And uh, she carried all the healing practices, all the, the, the shamanism of that culture. And so I had the, was the great beneficiary of spending time with her. And I think that whether you know it or not, if you're here tonight, you are being affected by Angelus Arian, as I am being affected by whoever has contacted you in your life. And we, we actually give, we pass on every moment, literally, the silent transmission of all that has affected us. And so you think it's a small thing that you're here, but it's actually a kind of, it's a, it's a happening that, that almost can't be helped. And it is, and you're actually impacting, and being impacted by all of life right now. And I, I just find that puts me in a sense of awe. And thinking about Angie today, and all the ways that she has rippled, her effect has rippled in my life. And so, any notion, oh, this this happened, and that, and this is because of this. It's every. Just think of all the in, the influences that she had that allowed her to be the healer that she was, the teacher that she was. So anyway, that was the first thing I wanted to start with, this just a sense of inner being. And so I'm in awe that I'm that we've we have
come together right now. It's kind of wild. Just think one little thing that was different, and it wouldn't be this configuration. It's wild. Sliding doors. Any of you see that movie years ago? One little change. The Tibetans have a word for... They have the word emaho. It means how amazing. So I've been uh, reflecting on, as I often do, about the awakening of the Buddha. And I often speak a little bit about, each week, about what he... uh, awakened to. The Buddha means awake, and he realized through his own arduous practice that um, that wakefulness, that the Buddha, that that which is awake in us uh, is, is deathless. It's unconditional. It is a reliable refuge. And as he sat under the Bodhi tree after going through the shock and dismay of realizing that he was not... um, that uh, his body wasn't a reliable refuge. There's sickness and old age and death. And his mind was ever-changing. His mind, he, his, his mind released from its dependency and its identity with all these things that are not so reliable that you can't rest in. Experiences are always changing. And his mind opened. And he, and he realized the, the, the reliable refuge that he had been searching for his whole life something that had almost inherent meaning in it, gave him a sense of of freedom, was none other than the very nature of his own mind. So he he was said at that moment from becoming the Siddhartha, the prince, or the prince-like person, he became the Buddha. And then spent his whole life pointing out the fact that you're the Buddha too. And you don't realize this because you think you're somebody else. And you miss this ever-present fact of wakefulness and clarity. And I've often wondered, and spoken about it here on Tuesday night, why didn't the Buddha just shout that from the hilltops? Uh, Just tell the good news that you don't have to look beyond this moment, wake up to who you are, what you are right now. Don't postpone it for a moment. Why didn't he just shout that? And, you know, this has been talked about for years, and the Tibetans have a teaching that says, why don't we see this? Why don't we recognize this right away? And they say there are four faults in our mind, and the four faults are uh, this wake, this awakeness, this Buddha nature is too close. It's like trying to see your own face. It's too vast. We can't quite accommodate it in our limited way of thinking. It's too wondrous. We can't even, we can't, can't accommodate the joy of it. And last but not least, it's too easy. We can't believe that all we have to do is, is, is turn and, and recognize the nature of our own mind. But I, it still raises the question, why didn't, he, why didn't he start his teaching with this? He didn't start with this. He started by going to his ascetic friends, beings who were sincere and... and uh, strong-minded, but a little misguided. I think they represented a certain kind of uh, spiritually 
uh, aspiring human beings, his ascetic friends who he starved himself with and did all these self-mortification practices. He went to them first uh, after his awakening, and he, he didn't say, hey, look right here, even though they were quite taken with the radiance of his, of his being. He seemed to be just emanating a kind of inexhaustible transmission, a kind of light. But what did he say to them? He spoke to them from the, the level of their, their day-to-day experience. He said, not everything is wonderful. He said, life's difficult. Life has within it things that are really hard to bear. And that's just comes with the territory. And your job, if you want to awaken, is to open to how difficult it is. Because otherwise, your life is just an endless attempt to escape that, that fundamental fact that life has, if you were born, a, a squeaky wheel. It has something that's, un, that's difficult to bear, unsatisfactory, something that's off, I don't know if I, last week I had just returned from having seven days uninterrupted with my family. And I was, uh, and I was, it was a lovely time. And, but I could tell all through the week there were these little elements that were not quite right. Not, the, the wheel wasn't rolling quite smoothly. And that's just the way life is. And I kept reflecting on it. Oh, here's the, if there's got to be dukkha, there's dukkha here. Dukkha is the word for unsatisfactoriness or that which is difficult to bear. And it was certainly an element, even on those, even on those weeks where I had, there's a little time off and able to hang out with who you want to hang out with, kind of unbroken time. Still, the wheel is, is squeaky. Doesn't quite roll smoothly. So this is what the Buddha shared with his friends. He said, you have to open to that. And you have to be able to say, I've really surrendered to that fact. This is not a mistake. This is how it is if you're born. So in other words, he's saying, this is the definition of life, is that it has these elements. And then what he told his friends was that what turns that basic squeakiness, queasiness, stressfulness, something not quite rightness, pain, old age, sickness, death, what turns it into mental suffering, in and of itself, that is not inherent suffering. That's just difficulty. But what turns it into mental suffering is our reaction to it is that chronic tendency of our mind to want it to be other than the way it is. It just immediately compounds the stresses with a, our reactivity and a craving for something to be different that uh, expresses itself as often a, a proliferation of fantasy or judgment or reactivity, ill will, the desire to keep, keep moving and keep going, desire to make everything stop and shut down, all of those movements of mind actually make 
a life much more difficult. And the Buddha's recommendation for, or his prescription for dealing with that cause of suffering about our challenged existence was to let go. Let go of that, that fight in your, in your mind with the facts of existence. Stop fighting with it. Relax into it. Let go. Let be. See it the way it is. See how life has come to be. Find some measure of acceptance in this moment or with, even with your situation. And he said, you have to be able to say, if you want to be free, you have to be able to say, yeah, I, I, I let go into it. And we do sometimes, sometimes kicking and screaming after we've worn ourselves out from ruminating or fighting with, with uh, trying to figure out a situation often there'll be a moment where we either cry or, or we, get, we collapse and then all of a sudden there's a, there's a cessation of, um, of our struggle and there's a letting go. But he's saying, do this with volition, let go. Do everything with a mind that lets go. And as we often talk about here, the, I use, often share the words of Ajahn Chah where he says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace, and if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. So that led to the third thing he said, is that uh, there is an end to this, um, this fight, this struggle, this wanting, this demand that things be different than the way they are, this state of craving, this state of becoming, this state of wanting to uh, not to face our life. There's an end to that. And there is a great sense of, of freedom that you can find right in this very life, right in the middle of it. Doesn't mean that there, the basic stressful conditions don't present themselves, but it's possible to sit in the middle of it with a great, even a great sense of joy of having a mind that's, and a heart that's not so reactive. A kind of tranquility and peace. You're... Uh, it, as a, um, and then even a loving response to the conditions that we're, we have. And he said, this must be, this potential for the cessation, for the end of our, our mental suffering, this must be realized. We have to realize it for ourselves. And then finally he said, there's a, there's a path. There's a path that we can... Uh, can cultivate in our lives and develop that um, that both that starts with reflecting on the reality of our of our life condition that that life has defects it's just the way it is it's not weird it's not just you it's everybody has a defective life in some form that life is like that to some degree it's not all of life but it has that element to it, it has so many it has joys, so many joys, but it has, has sorrow. That's not weird. It's just how it is. And there is a, a path that can allow you to develop the strength of heart, the open heart, the compassionate heart, the wise heart that can, that can navigate this world um, it, in a in less reactive way. And then, consequently, be of benefit in this world 
rather than being constantly blown by the winds of circumstances, be so caught up in our internal drama that we are not able to actually uh, look around and see our, our connection, our fellow bugs and our fellow beings, and that we can actually open our eyes and be strong and, and be active and be uh, beneficial in this world. And so we can reflect, if we reflect on the difficulties of life, that will naturally lead to want to live a life of non-harming, renouncing the causes of our suffering, a life of kindness, and that leads to wise effort, the effort to cultivate what's really helpful in our lives, to maintain what's helpful, to abandon what doesn't work in our life that adds to and compounds our suffering, and to, to make our hearts and minds so strong that we don't, we don't even, we don't let, that we're, we're, we start to become more and more impervious to the, to the forces that make us crazy, that make us, that lead to carelessness and heedlessness, that lead to harm. So we we, our mind gets so strong that we're so much here that we don't want to be somewhere else. We don't want to change our consciousness with alcohol or drugs. We don't want to, we don't want to be so caught in greed that we become oblivious to the impact on our planet or each other. We want to live in harmony. And that's, our thought starts being oriented that way and our actions start being oriented that way. And in the center of that, we, we train our attention to be to, we train our mindfulness, that capacity to be moment-to-moment moment aware with clear comprehension of where we are, what we're doing, because that, that awareness has within it so much intelligence, so much goodwill, that we, it, it helps guide us to act in ways that are wise and helpful. And this is, so this is the Noble Eightfold Path and... and that's the, that's the basic teachings, the Four Noble Truths. There's stress. What causes it is uh, this tendency to fight with that fact, to want things to be other than the way they are, think that there's a problem if, if, uh, if we have stress in our lives. And there's an end to our mental reactions, our mental suffering, and there is a path. Do you have your hand up, or is that? Go ahead. Please. I'm going to repeat your question, so, or your comment. On a personal level. On a personal level. I work with that. I'm alive. You work with the Four Noble Truths. So you're saying we're, you're, I'm talking to a group that's very privileged and? And that's okay, but you were saying that we're not to blame. I mean, there is no, we're not blame for what we're stupid fault. You are not your fault. Somewhat take take away um, 
responsibility. I, I also qualify. I just. Yeah, she said that that might take away responsibility or. Which I'm doing greatly now. That you're. She's saying that, they, that a lot of people don't have that responsibility. And as I was saying, if, if you play the talk back, you'll, say that you'll hear that I said we have, I said you are not to blame, but you are responsible for the conditions that have unfolded. Yes. Yes. How did the Buddha? How did the Buddha speak to the the difference in privilege and the difference in and the difference in pain based on privilege? Well, I think that the Buddha directly addressed that. From what I know of the story of the Buddha, what I thought what was quite radical about the Buddha is that he, at the time, he lived in India, obviously. And the, and the caste system was very strong in India. The classes were very stratified, and they still are to this day. But, and here too, no doubt about it. And what the Buddha, what the Buddha did was make, uh, informing the Sangha, is he made absolutely no, there was no hierarchy. The so-called untouchables, were sitting alongside the Brahmins. He, this was heresy uh, to the Brahmin community that uh, someone would homogenize, would, would equalize such a stratified culture because it was, he saw that every human being is inherently equal in their desire to be happy, to be free of suffering. So his the whole Sangha was built on trying to address the differences in privilege. Well, of course, that we, if our eyes are wide open, we will, just as you have, become increasingly sensitive to the kinds of pain of privilege that need to be addressed. It is your own pain. Whatever pain you see is your own pain. Okay. It's not other. That's what, and that's what our, that's what the sense of interbeing is meant to teach us. It's not meant to be about our own pain. Well, just to, he, I just so people can hear, she says, well, she, what she's hearing is that there will be the end of pain, and the, 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 that I'm saying that there'll be the end of pain, and, and then we'll go about our business and enjoy, is that? Yeah, our personal awakening and the whole world. Yes. Be the way they are, 
I, I think uh, she says she doesn't see in Buddhism the, the the physical act of going out and working with the pain. But I think your I think your view of what people are doing is very just not to be critical, but it's very limited because I know countless people that have completely given their lives over to to ending suffering. And in fact, the the fruit, the inevitable face of one's own inner freedom is the, the heart of compassion. And one can't help if one is awake to, uh, to have heartbreak that then expresses itself. It may not be in a way that you see, but it's happening every day in so many thousands of circumstances. Yeah, no doubt the disparity is getting greater and greater. But I think it's ultimately we can't just we can't just rest on on what is continues to be wrong and getting worse. We have to we have to resolve our own mind. Last week I think I, I may have shared the, the words of Nisargadatta as I do many times where he says the world's the way it is because people are the way they are. And so it, it's it's happening. And, so I just wanted to, the reason I brought up this whole teaching tonight, and this will not, this might not satisfy you about, about responding to all the, the inequity, the increasing income equality, the gentrification, all, everything that is, that is uh, the effect of the, just a second, everything that is the effect of the shroud of, of privilege and, um, and so much that is off in our own and limited in our own consciousness. But I, I want to tell a little story about my own and my own uh, successful, moment-to-moment successful navigation of the Four Noble Truths. Because it, it happens in little ways in our life. It's not always about how it transforms itself into um, radical social action. It does that too. But it's in the simple moments of our life, the simple irritations, the simple shocks, the, the, the things that happen to all of us. I am, um, this last weekend, and of course this is an expression of my, this is an example of my privilege, I had the good fortune of being able to go lead a retreat out in the country uh, where a, a retreat center in Texas I want to say the word Texas, and I want you to just feel how you react to it. And part, I'm going to embellish a little bit of the scene of this retreat, just maybe to help highlight how you may, uh, you may put Texas and Texans out of your heart. <laughs> so I went to this retreat center that I will admit, it is in, it's in between Houston and Austin. I've been going there every year with joy for 25 years. Why do I love going there? Because it is in the, it's in the countryside. There are large open fields, just acres of wildflowers this time of year, just fields of Indian paintbrush and blue bonnets. 
It's something that takes your breath away. And also throughout the day, hours and hours every day, is a constant singing of birds. All the birds sharing their repetitive songs and then the, the mockingbird coming in and, and kind of trying to shut out the sound of all the other things. And it's so stunning, so beautiful, such a, a rich transmission of the earth. Uh, and I went there just after giving, talking here about earth, uh, earth Day. It was two days later. And I came in the first evening and I was waxing about the earth because <laughs> the place and I, it had just been Earth Day and I was feeling, uh, feeling connected to the earth and the elements of the earth in my mind and body. And, you know, thought it was, uh, and I talked about welcoming, how a retreat is about welcoming, and how I think about it when I come here, and it, this, may a little, this may be a little connection to what you were talking about, but I, I like to think of a, a Tuesday night as, as um, that you sit down and you welcome. I, I welcome you, I welcome to the extent that I can, all parts of you. And I invite you to welcome yourself and all parts of yourself. Uh, and that this is really the practice, is to continually deepen our accommodation of all the parts of our world, all the parts of ourselves, and so that we can, we can find a, a place of, of balance. That, and so we don't have to hide away in... in the shroud of, of, our, of our little pods and our computers, and that we can actually face the pain of our life and the joys of our life and, and, not, um, and not miss it, and then be able to be responsive to it. So it's all about welcoming. So that was all fine and good, and I shared the introduction to the retreat and the, the, the refuges. You go to the Put your trust in awareness, put your trust in whatever it is that happens, put your trust in the support of, of your like-minded company that you're with. So all that sounds pretty good, right? And then I, the night was over, climbed into bed, and uh, fell fast asleep. And in the middle of the night, I woke up with a burning, sharp, pain, an intense pain, probably as intense an initial acute sense of pain that I'd ever experienced in, you know, a flash. And then I felt, and there was a, there was a, uh, I had been bit. I had been bit. And it was so potent that I immediately went into a, a sweat. And it, it turns out that I had just been bit by a scorpion. <laughs> this is, I don't mean, I'm not telling this as a pity party for my <laughs> But it was very interesting, the fruits of, of practice. Because I, of course, my body went through an initial uh, kind of shock and I was awakened out of a deep sleep and I tried to pound the, the uh, scorpion, so I broke the. Was trying to attempt to break the precept right off the bat of not killing. <laughs> and then I saw it scurry across the, the bed and I tried to do it again. <laughs> but, but more 
interestingly for me is that I noticed this immediate uh, fear reaction. Of course, I didn't know what 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 it was. I knew I didn't know right away that it was a scorpion. But then I okay, it's a scorpion. I didn't know the ins and outs of scorpions, but I associated with with uh, what are there some of those spiders that black widows and different spiders that can kill you. So I was, for a moment, I had, my life flashed before my eyes. And so it was clear that I was experiencing the first noble truth. The first noble truth. And the second noble truth was that, was that fight or flight reaction, the fearful reaction, wanting it to be other than the way it is, and then, then having that compound into a little proliferation about you know, where this would lead. But very quickly upon seeing both the fact of the dukkha and the fact of the reactivity in my mind, there was a, there was a, because there was a continual attention to what was happening, there was a cessation of all that. And I very, literally five seconds later, I calmly walked over to the phone, dialed 911. 911, the ambulance came, very nice paramedics, beautiful, Beautiful characters, country people, but just open-hearted, and they um, they had me come in the ambulance. I made them turn out the lights because we were out in the country. It's pitch black. People are camped on the in the fields, and I didn't want to wake them up. So they come in. I go into their ambulance. They look at me. I'm still in pain, but I, it's. They say, "Your first time, it's no big deal. You know, it's painful, but you'll survive. It's the next time that you have to worry about." It. Then you can go into anaphylactic shock once you've had the allergic, uh, once you've been bit before. But I had, I had, um, already I knew I had navigated through the whole of the Four Noble Truths in real time. And I tell you this because you can do this every day. You can notice the dukkha, the dukkha that which is hard to bear. You can notice the reaction to dukkha. And by virtue of being aware of that, you'll see that that uh, in a way, just by noticing your reaction, you abandon it because it can't survive the light of attention. If you notice something, whatever clinging you have in fear will just ease on the spot. It cannot, it cannot withstand the power of, of non-reactiveness. And mindfulness, by its nature, my mind may be, there may be reaction, but awareness is not reactive. Just as I was th- sharing last week the words of, of Tom Moon where he says, awareness, awareness of hot is not hot. And as I paid attention to that, the whole thing vanished. I was able to respond to the situation. So by virtue of that, there was a cessation of suffering. There was an end of suffering. Still had the symptoms. Still had the first noble truth, but without the excess suffering. And by virtue of having been mindful of that whole thing, I had walked... Uh, the Eightfold Path. The navigator of the Eightfold Path, the middle of it is mindfulness. So just to finish the story, the, the paramedics uh, wanted to see the, the scorpion. I said, well, it was last over there in the bed. And they pulled back the covers. It was exactly where I had last tried to stomp on it, and it was as alive as alive could be. <laughs> and the paramedic just said, oh, I catch a few of these every year from my kids. 
And I put them in a glass bottle, in a glass, and then we put them in the freezer. And my kids take a look. And I, I was so seduced, but I was a little out of it, but I was so seduced by the guy's sweetness that I let him take it with his flashlight, put it in a glass, and it's still sitting in the freezer. <laughs> so I broke the, I broke the precept. And it really didn't dawn on me till, you know, 15 minutes later that I had just encouraged this person to kill, <laughs> kill the scorpion. I may have prevented someone else from being bit, but uh, nevertheless, that's, there's still something to learn from, from. So again, I say this because we have all of these lofty teachings, as lofty teachings about the fact of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, the path leading to the end of suffering. And it's easy to forget that these teachings are meant to be a practice manual for real-time responsiveness to the conditions that present themselves in our life. And that's why the Buddha didn't just share the good news about the inherent luminosity of the mind. He said, you've got to learn to deal with stress right where you find it. You have to learn to see what adds to it and what lessens it. And you have to realize what it's like to face things uh, with a, a balanced heart, with a non-reactive heart, and be free. Instead of living your life in such a state of contraction that you're, that you're, um, that you're unable to cope with the stresses of life. And then you become more and more self-absorbed and preoccupied, and then you don't see the people on the street who are in different conditions. Karen. If I were bit by a scorpion, there is no way on earth I would reconsider, I would even think about the four noble truths. She was saying if she was bit by a scorpion, she wouldn't even consider the four noble truths. I can't help it. So that's that's what I want, if if we have time, and if not, go back to another time. That's the disconnect I always feel is that, you know, here and, and when I'm thinking about it, mindfulness comes very easily. But in that moment, in that moment, I don't, I don't always go That's where the rubber meets the road, and that's what I'm encouraging is that we see the Four Noble Truths not as some lofty teaching, but it's something that we can apply practically every day of our lives. I, what I noticed, what I noticed, is that there was this this unshakable calm behind all of it, and I know that that's the fruit of having practiced a lot. So it will, you just start noticing that it shows up for you and your capacity to roll through those conditions, and uh, so I just encourage everybody to practice, 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 practice. So we do have to call it a night. So please, just be be still for just a moment. And let's reflect on the possibility that there has been some benefit to us being together. Reflect for a moment of the fact that we don't exist apart from everything and everyone and all the people and all the different circumstances in this neighborhood and in our life. And consciously uh, incline our hearts toward sharing the blessings of our practice in our life with a, and adding to it a deep wish that everybody can find happiness and peace and everyone can be free of suffering and everyone can know a place of balance, an unshakable 
well-being that, that transcends circumstances and that all beings can at least grow and have more serenity and less reactivity to things and people and situations near and afar. Jeez, I, even this wire I thought was a little bug crawling, so I, I must have some work to do. Anyway, thanks for listening. May all beings be free. And thank you for your generosity. And please uh, support Elad Levinson next week. I, you won't be sorry you came. I think it will be very interesting.